on Sagittarian Matters, Comics versus Writing with Alec Longstreth, Treating Art as a Sport with Tilly Walden, plus we name names of the cartoonist with the worst hotel etiquette. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Longstreth, welcome back for the 50th time to Sagittarian Matters. It's always nice to be back, Nicole. <laughs> you are like a, you're like one of our like resident men here on the podcast. We really appreciate you consulting with us. <laughs> the few, the proud, the men on the show. Welcome. Um, I'm, I've reached the martyrdom part of my comics career mm. where I feel like at every opportunity I need to nail myself to the cross in front of other people to show them how difficult comics is and recently I was on a panel with some people and I I, I said something about how comics is harder than being a writer being a cartoonist is harder than being a writer because you have to write it but then you have to draw it right. so it's just like being a writer except for then if you had to draw it but you had some really Good things to say about this. Yeah, well, um, so I have uh, taught for many years at the Center for Cartoon Studies, and uh, we've had a couple students that sort of passed through our hallowed halls um, that came from a writing background. Um, you know, the more traditional path, I think, is for people to come in uh, because they love to draw. You know, like when you're a kid, you draw comics and stuff, and then you end up uh, in grad school for drawing comics. Um but it's rarer for us to get someone that's like a writer who wants to learn the drawing part of it and uh, sort of put that together. And so every once in a while we'd sort of clash on this topic where it's like, um, you know, writing's easier than drawing comics. I mean, you're, I don't think, Nicole, that you're the only cartoonist who's ever had that insight. Um, she's saying, I love writing. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think you're right. It's like as a cartoonist, you do have to write your whole thing. You have to do all the dialogue. You have to pace out the plot and stuff. Um, but the example that I sort of came to over the years um, that I think uh, puts a pin in what Nicole's saying is, uh, you know, like, let's say you're a writer and your protagonist is wearing a plaid shirt, right? Um, so on page one, you say, Jane walks in and she's wearing a beautiful plaid shirt. And it's uh, red with, uh, you know, like one of those lumberjack ones. It's like red with black cross whatever lines, whatever the lines on plaid are called. Um, and so now your reader has this vision in their head of Jane's lumberjack red plaid shirt. And you never have to mention it again uh, for the rest of the book. You could just like remember every once in a while, you know, um, Sally touched Jane's plaid shirt and it was so soft or something. And then you're like, all oh, right, Jane's wearing a plaid shirt. Um, and you would remember that. Um, and it's very little effort for the writer. They've established it. They maybe uh, reminded the reader of it a few times. You know, later on, Jane uh, got home from the bar in her plaid shirt. She threw it on the floor. And you're like, okay, got it. Um, I don't know. I just uh, made a little first act there. Um, see how easy it is to write? Okay, now let's switch gears. Now you're a cartoonist and you're like, I want my main character, Jane, to wear a plaid shirt, you have to draw, let's say, I don't know, like like when I draw a plaid shirt, I do like two lines vertically for each like stroke of the plaid shirt. So two lines vertically, two lines vertically, all the way across. 
then I do two lines horizontally, and then I have to do that again. So every time I draw my main character, let's say it's a standard six-panel grid on every page. Let's say it's a you know 300-page graphic novel. Um, suddenly, you have to draw those you know 18 lines every single panel because it's your main character. And so just this act of like, oh, I want my character to wear a plaid shirt is adding up to thousands of lines, and it's uh, adding up to, you know, every time you do it, let's say it takes a minute, and then at six minutes per page times 300, you're spending hours and hours and hours just from this one decision of having to draw a plaid shirt. So I think that's what Nicole's getting at, where it's not that, um, you know, because when writers hear this, I, I understand, they get prickly and they're like, yeah, but writing is editing and I have to agonize over the stuff. I have to visualize it all in my head, like what does her plaid shirt look like or whatever, so that I can make those three references to it in the book. And we're not saying that writing is easy. It's hard. All we're saying is that we know it's hard because we do the writing part, and then we also have to sit there and slog through hundreds of pages of drawing. So um, I think that's an example that can get at what Nicole is saying. Uh, What's your advice for old cartoonists? I keep asking you what's your advice for young cartoonists. What's your advice for old cartoonists? Simplify. There's never been a cartoonist in the history of the medium who has gotten more and more detailed as they get older. Like if you look at like any cartoonist, George Harriman, it's like when he was young, lots of cross-hatching, lots of detail, you know, like lots of panels on the page. And when he's older, fewer panels, less cross-hatching, simpler drawings. So simplify. I like that. And if you don't simplify, what, what could happen to you? Carpal tunnel syndrome for your hands, they'll fall apart, arthritis. Uh, you could go mad. You could end up killing yourself. All of these things have happened to many cartoonists. <laughs> Thanks for being on the podcast, Alec. My pleasure as always. See you next time, Nicole. Tilly Walden is the author of the books Spinning, On a Sunbeam, A City Inside, I Love This Part, and The End of Summer. She's a graduate of the Center for Cartoon Studies. She has a former life as a figure skater. She's a friend to Ponyo George's, and I had the great pleasure of speaking to her in a giant, crazy hotel room after the Miami Book Fair. Tilly is also generous enough to give us, as listeners, some stellar advice on cleaning. Please enjoy my talk with Tilly Walden. Tilly Walden. Welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having this Taurus. Oh, you're a Taurus. Yes. I have a really great Taurus sweatshirt that I bought because I like the design so much. Oh, wow. Maybe I send you a link or a picture yeah, sometime. Yeah, please do. I'm, I'm a proud Taurus at that. What does it mean to you to be a Taurus? Uh, I think it means that we're bold, we're mm-hmm. a little rash, and we're very independent. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, especially in my failed relationships i'm very much a taurus those are the things people yelled at you as they were walking out the door it feels a little bit like that you know like i never make time for anyone else i'm focused on myself and my pursuits Uh, and i think it helps make me a great cartoonist but not a a great girlfriend well this is my question this is a question i ask everybody what do you think it's like to date a cartoonist I, you know, I feel like it's got to be a challenge. And I think it really depends on what kind of cartoonist you're going to date. Because some people, I think if you're dating someone who is very conflicted about their work, 
that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And if they if they make things and they don't like them or have low self-esteem, which I think many cartoonists do, I think that'd be kind of miserable. But I think if you're dating a cartoonist that is comfortable in their position, that is maybe making enough money that they feel pretty confident, um, then I think it'd be okay. But I also will never date a cartoonist. How- Why? Have you done it? I have not done it because I won't date anyone who is an artist, really. What's up with art? I love artists. Oh my God, it's so funny. We're opposites. I uh, I really like when what I do is sort of foreign to someone Mm -hmm. and I I wouldn't want I just also I'm extremely competitive and if there was another artist anywhere near me I would be thinking I gotta draw better than them well I I have to say I've never dated a cartoonist I think I glamorize I think it would be fun once I dated a visual artist and it was fun well because when we go on vacation we could both just sit and draw and not talk to each other Mm. and have that be okay and have it be fun whereas if you're dating someone who's not an artist at all and you just turn your head down and start drawing while they're talking to you they might be a little they might be appalled you're right I've never thought of it like that but in a way my dream is to like date like a CEO or someone oh fuck yeah Yeah, just like really wealthy and powerful and then I make these like beautiful weird pictures and we're like this amazing power couple I think that that could happen for you in Los Angeles, California. I, I really hope so. Yeah, here's here's me officially announcing that I'm moving to L.A. Go to L.A., join some apps, or I don't know what you do. Go go around with a sign. I don't I, know. I don't know what you do, because I also hate online dating. It's the worst. I really, I find those apps, like, kind of painful, yeah. and just, like, not good for me. I don't go on OkCupid or Tinder or anything and feel good. Yeah. And I, I want to date someone, and I want this process to be fun and interesting, and so I will find another way. Yes. Well, I, I have, I'm, I'm working with like a current uh, theory that which is what Tinder. It's. I feel like it's a little bit too much. Excuse, excuse the expression God. The expression God, but it's a little bit like too much forcing God's will in the way where like mm. you meet people through Tinder that you never would have met socially, and maybe there's a reason for that. Like maybe there's a reason you don't have enough friends in common that you've ever approached each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I really hate the whole boiling down your personality to just like little bite-sized pieces and a picture of you. Like I think there's something kind of magical in meeting someone and getting to know each other naturally rather than someone knows going in that I like the office and I draw comics, you know? Yeah. And that's what they'd get from a profile. I'm not a profile. And it's weird cuz my generation this is what we do. You are your your generation is avatars. We are we are iGen apparently. That's what we're called. Isn't that the worst name? iGen like iPhone. Oh. So we're after millennials. <laughs> Anyone born after 1995 is is either we're Generation Z or iGen. And iGen likes Tinder, and that's stupid. Also, that's a stupid name. Uh, one of my friends taught me the word flexin for the gram. Which Whoa. would be something that your generation does, and maybe like hell's yes, maybe like thirstier people from my generation would do, or like yes. bumping your life up on like Instagram to look a little bit cooler. I get that. Although weirdly enough, I think a lot of people my age sort of we started to push back against that, and we post like either not ugly pictures, but more like just not that yeah. uh, weird pictures, pictures of like just random stuff. Uh, because I I think millennials do it a little differently. Oh yeah, millennials. I don't. I don't identify as a millennial, but I am technically a millennial. millennial? But I, I feel like I separate myself from the rest of millennials. Wait, I want to say, but also not say that people really do harass you about your age. I was listening to a podcast where they were like, "You get annoyed about talking about your age," and I was like, "Oh." And then we did a panel today, and And you saw it live and in person. Well, the first thing somebody said was somebody. You know, to be like, oh, you were born in 1996, which is, you know, it's tr- it's startling if you like have memories from 1996 and you're like, oh my god, like you yeah. don't have that memory of Kurt Cobain dining. <laughs> but it's also like a thing where it's like people are like weirdly competitive. People get people seem to honestly get upset with me. 
over it. And it's, it's, that has happened that, so what happened on our panel today has happened at almost every panel I ever do where they kind of announce my age. And it's like, oh my God, you realize I'm not here to talk about being 21. I'm here to talk about my comics. Yeah. And I, and I do, you know, and the thing is I'll talk about it if people approach it without hostility. But as soon as people kind of bring it up to me or bring it up on a panel or in an interview with kind of hostility and envy, it, I get really defensive and it's because it's kind of upsetting. It's like, I, I'm I'm so sorry that I'm young and I'm making you feel like weird about yourself, but I can't, I can't do anything about that. You got nothing to do with them or what no. they were doing at 21 or but anything. It, it is interesting that you mentioned as, as like harassing me because it does feel like that sometimes. People go after me. Well, there's like a weird thing. I mean, I think there's two things. There's like people that like professionally are like you have a book out with a major publisher and you're only 20 you know i'm 105 and i never had that there's like that kind of thing there's that thing but there's also i feel like this thing where like women are sometimes like not bred but like socialized Mm -hmm. to like be like it's like an acceptable caddy kind of like yeah thing for women to talk about your age you know i don't there's like weird ageism at play between them feeling like they've aged out of hotness or viability because of what the culture tells people about aging and then they see you and then they're like putting those issues onto you does that yeah that makes total sense it's they i think that everyone feels kind of threatened and it's uh it's sort of bizarre but in skating you would be like almost geriatric right now wouldn't you exactly no i'm way too old to be a skater at this point my god and my figure is not skating appropriate you'd like crutch on to the skating rink the ice rink i know i need one of those walkers that people use yeah you need like a walker with your tennis balls on the bottom so you don't slip right away oh my god and people forget that it's all about perspective like i go to these conventions and book festivals and i always get crap about my age and then i go to high schools and the high schoolers are like you are so old and i'm like yes thank you for saying that i actually am grateful to hear that for once because they have good perspective yeah but i don't know i mean i didn't have a book out in the same way when i was 21 but i had been making zines for like like seven or eight years by the mm-hmm. time i was one and nobody gave me shit about it but I, maybe you're dealing with more older people and your level of success is different i don't know anyway wow. all that is to say something that's cool i didn't go to college either Nice. Oh, my God. Non-college buddies. Non-college buddies. Uh, But I do teach at college, and I taught at the Center for Cartoon Studies where you went after high school, which I think was a baller move. Yeah, it was like the perfect thing for me because it was a two-year program it was highly focused on comics didn't have to take any classes i didn't want to take got to like go to school in this kind of part-time way because the classes didn't fill your whole life um and it was perfect for me it was so much better than college i think well yeah and it just was like very attuned to the thing you wanted to do yeah i knew what i wanted to do and i knew i was i didn't want to go to a typical art school because that kind of life and that the uh I think the way they teach art at art schools was really sort of against how I work. And what I loved about CCS is is it was really like a make a comic and then you run with it, you know? And no one no one along the way was saying this is the wrong way to do it. They just wanted to see me working. Mm-hmm. And that I could do. I can work. I can make comics. And uh, and CCS just seemed to suit me and I was really relieved when I got in because I didn't know if I was good enough or, you know, if they would let me in as an 18-year-old. Um, but they did, and, and it was the best decision I ever made. I miss it a lot sometimes. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like. Because you, you went there, and then you found all these people that were like you. Like, I don't know how many cartoonists you knew yeah, from your hometown. I knew none. And it was, it was, well, it was this weird mixed thing, because, like, CCS was an amazing experience. I made some friends that I will have forever. But at the same time, being the youngest one there 
and finding success very quickly while at CCS, because my first three books were published while I was at CCS. I found my agent. I found for a second. Everything that happened to get me to where I am happened while I was at CCS. And I started hiding it from people, and I stopped telling people when good things would happen because they got so upset about it because mm. I was... I, it felt like they all felt like I was stealing their opportunities, you know, and people, I felt like people at the school often were waiting for me to trip up. They're waiting for me to fail. There's no scarcity, though. That's the thing. I know. And that's what's so appalling to me. But everyone there so badly wanted a book deal yeah. and they so badly wanted an agent. And the fact that I just did it and I got one. I, there was just a lot of resentment that came out in a lot of different ways. But at the same time, I had these amazing friends who carried me through and who supported me totally. Yeah. I mean, when I got the book deal with First Second, there was a very mixed reaction because a lot of people were just like, oh my God, of course, or like, okay, Tilly, like slow down. But then I had these two friends, Dave and Mel, who just celebrated with me all night yeah. and they were so proud of me. And that felt so rare because I was so used to my successes being met with jealousy that it was just, it was wonderful. I really like the cheer that all the little girls said for each other in your book. Smile, shake it, we love you. Yes. <laughs> How did they say it? Would they say oh, it would go, smile, shake it, we love you. And then like lots of clapping and yelling like a, uh, what was it, like a cowbell? Yeah. Yeah. But, well, because they're, it seemed like, because you're all on the same team. So mm -hmm. if you meddle, at a, I'm just like, this is like such a layman's impression no, of like ice skating from watching TV and reading your book. Yeah. But it just seems like if you get a medal or something, it looks that looks good for your coach so all the people they coach that looks good for your team that looks good for your home Absolutely. whatever it does. but i just feel like i just it's, it's interesting that sometimes in art people can't see it as like a team and also i don't i just find like within feminist circles that i'm in like literary circles or whatever we have kind of like shine theory or kind of like if i rise you rise so like mm. you know like if i get something i'm happy to share that with the people around me because then like we can all come up and it doesn't yeah. diminish I don't get any less stuff if I, like, help other friends up or if I congratulate friends. But sometimes in comics or in less feminist spaces, there's a little more competition. Absolutely. And there's a lot less camaraderie. Yeah. You know, in, in skating, there is there was a sense of camaraderie in that when, when I win a medal, we all win a medal. Um, but with comics, it, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like, you know, if I think a lot of people think if... If I get nominated for an Eisner, then they're not going to get nominated for an Eisner. And it's it's a little like, oh, my God, guys, we're all in this together. I know. Like, right? how awesome would it be if, like, you know, like, how many people in your class? Like, 15 or something? Yeah. Like, if 15 people all had books coming out, there's enough publishers I know. for 15 people to have books coming out there. Anyway, all that is to say, you used to be an ice skater. I sure did. You came up with this book while you were at CCS. Yeah, that's my thesis. You had... Will you describe, like, what happened towards the end of your first year that launched you into kind of even exploring this at all? Mm -hmm. um, it was, uh, I, we had this final assignment, end of year assignment, and our teacher, Jason Lutz, who is basically the mother figure who we all really wanted to make proud, um, told us to make the best comic we'd ever made. And I was like, oh, shit, I gotta make the best comic I've ever made. And I was walking home, and I was thinking about what's a topic that could be, that could make a really interesting comic to anyone, you know, like what's something, what's just like, what's something about me in my life that could make a really good comic? And I thought, oh, I was a figure skater for all these years and I've never made a comic about it. And I've also never really thought about it since I quit. Why don't I try? And I went home, sat down on my kitchen table, got my Bristol board, got my pens without even really thinking about it and just started to draw. And I like completely broke down. And every time I tried to draw myself on the ice and I tried to draw my legs, I would drop the pen and just start crying. I, like, I couldn't do it. 
Um, and I, I went to my friend and I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I need to make this comic to impress Jason to make everyone proud and I can't do it. And my friend told me, gave me great advice. He said, you know, you're in no hurry. Just just take some time and, and maybe this story can happen later because it seems like right now, emotionally, not ready. And I wasn't. So I made a different comic. Everything was fine. And I took the summer between my first and second year at CCS to just think about this. And I realized I was like vastly afraid of my past and really had a lot of big feelings about uh, being a figure skater and, and just my childhood in general. And I thought, you know what? Like now's as good a time as any to deal with this. Why wait? You know, no, no one says that you have to wait a certain amount of time before you can dive back and start looking at yourself and understanding yourself and understanding your experiences. And so I was like, fuck it, I'll just do it for my thesis because I needed an idea for my thesis, which is the second year project. And uh, I, I sort of designed my thesis here to make sure that there were people taking care of me and like holding my hand through it. Like James Stern was my thesis advisor. And I did that because like every week I would go sit with him in his studio and on his couch and we'd, we'd just talk and I'd tell him all my concerns and my feelings and he had me do this free writing that was very personal and he read it and talked to me about it and he carried me through you know like the footprints poem yeah yeah <laughs> exactly and then he, had, he had his jesus mug that yeah. he was drinking out of in his office and then you were like james there's only one set of footprints You're like that's when i was carrying you uh, oh my god isn't that amazing it is it is what's so um so James helped you, and you talked about free writing, which I like to do a lot. And I, I love try, free writing. My students sometimes are like, "What the hell?" Because they really want like a <gasps> almost like a worksheet or like a oh they want me to be like, "No, write the stats." But I'm like, "No, just like trip out, man. Go into yeah. your character's life and just write oh my God, yeah. for a certain amount of time as much as you can." Free writing is so important. It is when you're working within structures. There's only so much that you're ever going to let out, and when you're free writing, it's all about letting everything out. And spinning started as a free write. I just wrote like 20 pages of nonsense about my memories and my family and my feelings and, and these traumas. And I just like poured it out of myself. And what I literally did is I handed that to James and I was like, James, I don't know what to do about this book, but I wrote this big thing. And he was the one who told me to free write. Because I was like, James, I'm ready to draw my comic. And he was like, don't you dare. Free write first. Don't do it. Don't start drawing it. You're not ready. And he was right. And uh, he looked at that free write, and he went through and he underlined things, and he put stars next to things, and everything he underlined and starred is is spinning. I love that. Well, so one thing in the book is you uh, are a homosexual. I show am. <laughs> you come out as a homosexual, and you're found out. Yes. Yeah, sort of outed. Were you? Fa- Did you draw a comic of you and the person that you were? That was like your love interest and your parents yes. found like a literal comics outed you to your yeah. family. Well, it was a drawing. I was uh, really into Leah Michelle from Glee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Rachel. <laughs> oh, it's so embarrassing. I also at the same time was nursing quite a crush on Jillian Michaels. Oh, she was like such a badass. Yeah. I wanted to like gain weight just to go on The Biggest Loser just so she could train me. <laughs> gain that much weight that you could get on The Biggest Loser. Yeah, yeah that's how much I wanted her. Yeah. Um, but no, it was that I did. I made a drawing of me and Leah Michelle's smooching uh, that my parents found oh my god yeah not the best way to come out they were like is this that like kind of type a girl from glee wearing who like wears I, a horse sweater and you're I like yeah i don't know if we ever even talked about the girl who i drew it was more like a okay we've seen this is this true like are you are you a lesbian and i, I had to say yes because i had known my whole life whoa so how did that go 
with them poorly you know it is hard it was really really hard but I say this all the time at school visits because kids constantly ask me like how do you come out or like how did your parents react or what do you do with this because they're wondering for themselves and I always say that it takes time it just took it just took us some time and now as a family we're really strong and they totally love me and they they especially love they they love that I'm gay they totally support it it's this amazing thing but at the time uh they didn't and it was hard for them and it was hard for everyone but we we processed it and we moved on but i think even the nicest of coming out stories are difficult oh yeah you know, even the ones where your parents are just like that's great go be gay it's still there's always challenges associated with it yeah i just feel like yours is kind of a more this was a tricky way for it to start it was tricky and then it was like it was like one of those like sad lesbian movies where the person that you were kind of like fooling around with like oh, your best friend person yeah. like had to stop talking to you because her- because her mom found out that we were together because of our emails Oh, the emails. I know, always the emails. And we just wrote, I love you constantly to each other. Um, but it's it's interesting. So I didn't see her again for many years, but we have since reconnected. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, and she's okay. And I was just texting her last night. Whoa. Isn't that cool? Did you ever see the movie Heavenly Creatures? No. I really that? recommend it to you. <laughs> oh, no. It's a true story. I mean, don't let your mom listen to this podcast. It's a true story about these two girls from England uh-huh. who... Oh my god, Linda Berry has a funny story about this too, but that's a side tangent. These two girls in England, I can't remember if it was the 60s or 70s, but they were in love. Like, they had, like, a lesbian moment Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. And then their moms found out and wanted to keep them apart, so they conspired to kill one of the moms. (laughs) So then they, like, maybe bludgeoned her mom to death. Oh my god. And were like, we're going to be together, but then it said they had to go to jail. Um, (laughs) Then the show became Orange is the New Black. Yeah. But uh, but it's a great movie, and I don't know if it would touch some kind of teenage chord for you or wow. something. It's a very beautiful movie. Kate Winslet, it was like one of her first movies. Oh my she God. was a teenager. But Linda Berry has this story where she was at some kind of writer's festival, like what we're at now, mm-hmm. where she was on a panel or in a back room with one of the women from Heavenly Creatures. <gasps> Or who had, like, one of the real women that had gone to jail that the book was based off oh of, the movie God. was based off of. And so in her head, she was like, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. But then in the midst of her telling some story, she just was talking about writing. And she, like, made some motion, like she was, like, bludgeoning something to death <laughs> as she was talking about this writing technique. And then she realized that she was doing it in front of the woman who had bludgeoned her mother to death. And anyway, I'm not tell- I'm not doing it justice, but... Uh, wow, that's yeah. amazing. You know what my gay movie was when I was a teen? What? Show Me Love. I never saw that. It's very obscure. It's Swedish. And it was on Netflix for about five minutes when I was in high school. And I watched it. And it looks like it's recorded with a home video camera. But it's about these two little Swedish girls who fall in love. And it is the most... It's the best. Do you know the website Autostraddle? Yeah. So Autostraddle voted as like the number one, or maybe it's number two after But I'm a Cheerleader. But they voted it very high as one of the best like lesbian movies. Wait, who's in it? Or what do they look like? They're Swedish. I don't know. Swedish. I, I can't know. say their names. I don't know either. Um, questions. You have been on tour for a while. Yes. Can you confirm or deny that tour is the hottest thing that's ever happened? I can confirm that it is the naughtest thing that has ever happened. It's the worst. What are things that keep you grounded? Or do you have like tour hacks or tour tips or things that like weird rituals that you do every place you go? Yeah, I like pack unpacking and repacking my bag is a total ritual for me. I have to like take everything out and lay it all out and refold it, even when it's perfectly neat, um, just because I have to feel like I'm ready to go to the next place. And then I have a tour sketchbook and that that helps in the airports and hotels. Like I whenever I'm feeling really kind of stressed out and exhausted, I like curl up in my hotel bed and open a new page in my tour sketchbook and just draw whatever I'm feeling um but it's I feel like I'm still seeking out a way to make it okay 
because it's like it's so much traveling it's so exhausting it's really hard talking about yourself this much you know it's hard promoting a memoir and uh and i just like i want to stop moving mm-hmm. i'm really i'm tired the feeling of being in motion is really intense. It is. And, you know, like, I have this cold right now, and I'm, and I, like, I feel like I'm constantly getting sick or just, I'm not feeling 100% there. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to eat well. It's hard to get enough sleep. Um, and it's, it's just hard. And I find it's hard to be super present. And I like being present. I like making every day count. And on tour, it feels like you just want to try and get past these days. Mm-hmm. It's like, when will I get to the point where this day is over? And when I'm living my normal life, I really like to feel like I'm enjoying being in this day. I'm enjoying, like, doing things. Um, I... I- I, on tour, I don't feel like I'm ready for the day to be over because I, I actually like the thing once I'm in it. As, you know? an, as an introvert, mm. my sister called me out of being an introvert. Uh, I, at the end of the day, I feel like all my chi is gone yes. and there's just a gaping, hole, sucking hole of wind where my energy was. And so then I end up like speed eating and like crying and or something. Yes, yes. Even oh my God, in me the, too. In the moment, I'm like, oh, it's so great to me. Like, oh my God, this is like the finally, because being a cartoonist is such an isolating thing that actually like going out and meeting people that are like, I appreciate the thing you did i'm like thank you but um but i was gonna say that's how i feel long distance relationships make me feel like i'm not able to appreciate the days that i'm in Mm -hmm. because i'm either anticipating Mm -hmm. seeing the person again and wanting time to speed up or i'm afraid that time's going too fast because we're together and i know it has to end right god well and i'm i'm an introvert too although i'm excellent at pretending to be an extrovert yeah it's a skill and actually, it's led to problems on tour where people are like, oh, my God, you're so outgoing. Let's, let's just go out and party. And it's like, I'm dying inside. You have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea. I'm so good at public speaking. I'm good at, like, just projecting this image of myself. But in reality, I am, like, the shyest person in the world. Yeah. I When my sister called me out of being an introvert, I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, what about yeah? my job? And she's like, you're a showman, but you're an introvert. Like, oh. that drains you. You gain energy from being alone. Yes. And then it exhausts you. Absolutely. My travel hack is that I wear headphones, like giant headphones at the airport. They're not even tucked into anything. No kidding. It's just so people don't talk to me. Wow. And I like that. Because I don't, you said like you draw in public. I don't. Oh, I hide, I curl up. I yeah. make sure no one can see it. And if I'm sitting in like a middle seat on a plane, I get so stressed out trying to draw because I feel like they're looking at me and they're I, watching me. They are because people come on the plane, they have nothing to do. And then they just like, what are you doing? I know. How dare you watch me draw leaves? Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of Stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts, because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, Please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever but in the meantime thank you we appreciate your support and i look forward to saying your name on the podcast producer ponyo looks forward to it too that was ponyo's voice don't be scared bye thank you this week to shoshana ruth wechter 
Mary Pinson, Jamie Beth Rabin, and Jen Dixon. Okay, so your book is about ice skating. Uh, something that listeners cannot see, because if they could, I would ask you to do it, is that you were saying on the panel, um, we both have chapter, you know, in Fetch, the chapters are like, you know, sit, come, stay, and yours are put into um, ice skating moves. Yes. Kind of easiest to hardest. What is what is the hardest ice skating move? That I've done? Yeah. Or to do. Oh, to do. Well, any any triple or quad jump. As soon as you get to that many rotations in a jump, it's just like, no, thank you. I was only ever doing double jumps, so those were that was as much of a rotation as I was ever putting on my jumps. But I also, I, I was a terrible spinner, and it still cracks me up that this book is called Spinning, because spinning is like the one thing that I could never fucking do, because I wore my glasses when I skated. Mm. And when you're spinning, my when I was spinning, my glasses would like wiggle, and so I would be seeing the ice rink swirling back and forth with my glasses moving, and it was the most nauseating thing. Um, and I, I could never when you spin on the ice, you're supposed to stay in one spot. And I would I was a traveler, that's what you would call it, uh. is if your spins move. Um, I was terrible at it, so spins were always hard for me. But the triple and quad jumps are are when it gets serious. But the book only ever goes to double jumps because I wanted to keep the chapter titles within realms of things that I actually did. Mm-hmm. I felt more honest for whatever reason. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah, I'm so thank glad. you. Ben. I did not do a triple axel. No, thank you. I watched I watched this one girl uh, at the rink as she was trying to learn to do triples and it was just like I just watched her fall every day and it looked so painful. Endlessly just throwing herself up in the air and she could never get the rotations in. You at a certain point in the book couldn't jump. Did yes. you get your jumping powers back? I did. My my kryptonite, my jumping powers. That's so funny. It's like I'm a superhero. Yeah, I, I hit a wall sort of emotionally, and it started affecting my skating where I, I was sort of unable to do jumps. I would I would be skating fast, and I'd speed up, and I'd, I'd you know get on my leg that you take off on, and I just couldn't. I couldn't convince myself to pull my leg through and get up in the air because I was afraid of falling. And it was years before I really started jumping again. And when I did, I got it back. But it's so funny because now, if I got back on the ice, I would do great jumps because I'm confident enough to just go in the air. But at that age and at that time, I had no confidence. And so I was so petrified of trying something, of trying these jumps. And now I have no interest in ice skating, but I actually think I'd be a much better skater now Hmm. because I actually believe in myself. Wow. Yeah. I was a cheerleader for a year. Whoa. In seventh, eighth, seventh, eighth grade. And that's a tough time. Tough time. But I couldn't jump. I just could. I tried. I like went to classes. I went to like a gymnasium. Like I got a trampoline in the backyard. I did all. I could do so many high kicks. I could do the splits. I could do so much stuff. But jumping, like Mm. I couldn't get off the ground. And I don't know why because other people can do it and so i'm like my body isn't that weird like i bet you have a capability i think jumping requires a certain state of being and a certain emotional maturity maturity is the wrong word but i'm sure there was something holding you back from confidence i did not have i had no therapy under my belts if there's some kind of other key to the puzzle yeah really no i think i think getting off the ground in any capacity requires being comfortable with being out of control Oh, that was not happening for me. I know. And me neither at that time. Um, and, and especially when you're dealing with hard ice and blades. I've, I've had so many like injuries that I, I got more and more afraid of it happening again because I know how much it hurts to fall on the ice. 
And also, like, Blades of Glory, like, your head could just get cut off. Well, and I, yeah, exactly. I, I, that movie cracks me the hell up. It's so not accurate, but of course, <laughs> but I love it. Um, I was constantly cutting my legs oh. because you're, when you jump, your right leg kind of pulls through. And my, I'm, I'm showing you in person, but yeah. the people listening can't, can't try and visualize it. My right leg would come up against my left ankle and I would just slice Ooh. endlessly. Wow. Oh, got so bloody. That's gnarly. Yeah, it's super gnarly. That and gymnastics. The oh. girls are fucking tough. Yeah, gymnastics and ballet. Yeah. Gymnastics and ballet are the sports that I always equate this to because it's, it requ- it's a huge physical demand on your body, and they are sports that pretend they're not sports. Ballerinas mm. are not supposed to look like they're working hard. Gymnasts are not supposed to look like they're working hard. Same with ice skaters, whereas like tennis players and skiers and basketball players, they can sweat, they can show it, they can grunt. But these sports, specifically gymnastics, ballet, and skating – are the sports that pretend it's easy yeah. and that you're supposed to just go on and be graceful and no one realizes just how hard you're working. I can't even. I mean, it just, there's some kind of like weird femininity forced on those sports. And oh, the, absolutely. That's where I think a lot of the commonality comes in is that, especially for girls in those sports, it really is like, oh, this crazy weird feminine culture or, yeah. or what we think is feminine culture. Um, it's so toxic. No, I wonder, I wonder if those sports will ever... Will, change at all as gender changes in our culture you know i hope so i really do because it's it's in a way they feel so behind in the fact that like you know girls wear the dresses and guys wear the pants and skating yeah like how old is that at this point how are we still not past that yeah and then like if you're like gender queer in any way like are you allowed in skating or gymnastics like what happens to you i i don't know what happens to you i imagine it's just an absolute struggle And especially since you're often divided in competition by gender, girls against girls, guys against guys, um, and there's just specific requirements for each, for each gender, and it's it's sort of unbelievable. Yeah. Wait, I have. I'm turning, taking a left turn. Take a left turn. When you were when you were at CCS, Mm -hmm. you got a job as a hotel maid. Oh yes. Somebody taught you how to clean. Yes. And now you've applied it to your life. Oh my God. Can you tell me? about cleaning. I can I can really tell you about cleaning. And here's the thing with cleaning is it requires time. And if you're going into cleaning your apartment with 10 minutes, your apartment's not going to be clean. Making something genuinely clean requires focusing all your energy on it. Um, and I know a lot about this because I, because I have deep cleaned rooms, which is where you literally clean every inch of a hotel room. And it's pretty intense. And one of the biggest tricks I learned is that when you're cleaning a surface, especially in the kitchen or the bathroom, whatever you're spraying on it, you have to let it sit for at least a minute. You cannot just spray and then wipe it off because then nothing happens it's not actually clean the chemicals in the cleaner work when they sit on something so like your stove your kitchen counter your bathroom floor your toilet spray stuff on it go away and do something else and then come back and clean and you will be amazed you'll be amazed the grime i have gotten off hotel bathrooms just by putting bleach on it and letting it sit it has to sit. It has to do its work. That and do not try and clean a surface with things on it. If you want to clean, if you want to actually clean something, you got to move things around. you got to take all the crap off your desk, get the shit off your bed, get the shit off your floor, so you can actually clean in all the spaces that we avoid. But cleaning is so important to me. Do you go top to bottom or what? I do, like... I tend to work on areas, so like I'll I'll do yeah I guess it is like I'll do counters and then I'll do floors, um, and then it also depends on what cleaner I'm using. So like if I have one cleaner for all glass stuff, I'll do all the glass at once. But uh, everyone has a different method. I'm also I'm freakish about vacuuming. Mm, what do you mean? Well, I get eraser shavings everywhere, and oh, it drives yeah. me fucking crazy. Yeah. And and I love when a, a freshly vacuumed floor is just amazing. And honestly, 
working from home, it is extraordinarily therapeutic to clean your home, to mm-hmm. genuinely clean your home. I don't mean just throwing your clothes in the closet or trying to like half make your bed or like kind of wipe your counter down. I mean genuinely cleaning the space you live in. If your space is clean, you will feel clean. You'll feel healthier. You'll feel safer. I just, I think it's so good for people, but people don't actually give themselves time to clean and you need to make a time, build in a time to your schedule that like, this is my two hours to go through everything to make my space perfect. Mm-hmm. I'm so into it. I am in a weird zone where in LA I have an apartment that's pretty expensive for me. Yeah. So when I go out of town for long stretches, I will get a subletter. Mm. But before a subletter, I end up getting a cleaning lady yeah, to come so that course. it's actually a little bit more clean than I know how to do. But now I'm a little bit hooked. Keep it. If you can afford to keep it, keep it. But if not, then just begin to notice the things that she cleans that makes you... I'm assuming it's a female, is it? Okay. Thank God. Um, How dare you? How dare I? How dare I? But if you you notice that every time your cleaner comes, they do this one thing that makes you really happy... Try to do that thing. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, they made the, they, like, they mopped or they made the counters really clean. Then then when you clean, focus on that. When you go into different hotel rooms or other people's apartments or spaces, is there one thing that, like, bugs you? Like, do you look at baseboards? Or is there something that you look at that you're like, this is my canary in the coal mine of whether or not this place is clean? Yes. I always look at the baseboards because I remember cleaning the baseboards. I'm constantly looking at how they make the bed and how well tucked in it is. I just want to say right now my bed is not that well tucked in. I know. In. But the thing is, I love to untuck a bed. It's just when I come into a hotel room, I expect absolute perfection in the tucking. And I also now notice um, where the trash cans are and how they place the amenities in the bathroom like the the soaps and the towels and if they're placed in a weird place that you can't find them I get really upset like oh my god the customer must find the face towels and the, the shampoo because I was so used to placing it artistically for everyone mm-hmm. but it's just weird going into hotels because this used to be my job and did people tip you? Because I learned going on Sister Spit with a bunch of people that yes. that were very aware of class issues that you need to tip the hotel mates. You do. It's a really lovely thing to do. I mean, if you just sleep in the bed and take one shower and there's like the trash can is half full, it's kind of okay if you don't tip. If you actually like really live in your room and make a mess, you have to tip because housekeepers don't make a lot of money and often the tips really help out and certain rooms will take a lot longer to clean and the ones that take a lot longer to clean you definitely should tip you know i had i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and call out this this cartoonist what the fuck was his name i really who was the guy who did spy versus spy peter cooper Mm -hmm. and he came to the hotel to stay and i while, while i was working there and he was a visiting artist at ccs and i i made sure to like it's the hotel coolidge is not the loveliest of hotels i made sure to get him extra towels get him anything he needed pay attention to him um, and at our at the Hotel Coolidge, we had these tip envelopes that we started leaving out to encourage people to tip because, my God, I made $10 an hour. I, I needed more than that. And uh, he left the tip envelope sealed and kind of stuffed up on his bed. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so incredible. He left a tip. I opened the sealed envelope, and there was a fake $100 bill in there. <gasps> and I almost screamed. I was so pissed because it was like, cool, now I'm going to fake clean your room, asshole. Fake money? He put fake money, and he made the point to seal the tip envelope and put it on the bed. Why would he do so mean? Isn't that such a dick move? I was so upset, because I that was a really busy day, too, especially I had, like, 30 rooms to clean, and... Well, now I'm going to pull the age card. I'm like, you don't go to, like, a fucking 18, 19-year-old student who's taking care of you, and you're there, like adults oh like you need to be the adult in the room and like their mentor or like so, you know what i mean and then you just like play a prank on them i know well and especially like because i actually had to clean his room it's like this isn't a joke this is my job i was really upset about it oh my god i 
that's that that's egregious. This is the first time we've had a call out on the podcast, yeah, and I think this is I, worth it. I'm really ready because I don't care what Peter Cooper thinks of me, but I obviously know what he thinks of housekeepers. Yeah, and you know what? You tip them. They're working hard. Yeah, tip them or just don't and don't leave me fake money because that's that's obnoxious. <laughs> don't leave them a note that said, "Here's a tip, get a different job." But yeah. and also, he's a cartoonist. He knows what it's like to not make a lot of money. He's quite familiar with the struggle of not making money. Man. All right. Do you? Well, that have, was fun. That was fun. That was fun for me. Okay, anyone, anyone else you needed <laughs> no, to call out or anything? I'm good. I'm good. That's my one. That's my one call out. Um, do you have any advice for young cartoonists? I do. I do. And that advice is to finish everything that you start. Um, it is really easy to have ideas. It is really easy to start a comic. And it is a big challenge to finish it. I'm not saying that you have to finish your graphic novel. I'm just saying if you start a three-page comic, finish it. Finish everything that you start because if you do that, you are going to surprise yourself in that you will have a body of work and you will learn from every project that you do. And it's hard to learn from projects that you don't finish. And uh, I, I say that just across the board because I really do think that when people make a lot of comics, every comic they make gets better. Mm-hmm. Like across the board, I see that happening to everyone. But everyone who's doing that is fin- they're finishing the comics that they make and uh and yeah i would just say that every time you sit down to make something you push yourself to finish it and if you do that you will find your way how many pages do you feel like you made before you started this book or before you found your style and your groove mm, i made Maybe maybe it was about a hundred. Maybe it was about a hundred pages. I was making comics in high school and uh, all short form comics. But every every couple of days, I would finish one and make another short form comic. And I felt like it was about a hundred hundred twenty pages I had drawn that I started to actually feel really comfortable in the medium, really comfortable holding a pen and, and tackling any panel. Um, and obviously, I think I progressed differently as a storyteller, but as an artist, I think I needed those first 100 pages mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to get me there. How do you, do you have advice for young comics students? Oh. Um, because I feel like it seems like you are somebody who really went to CCS and like utilized all resources. Yes, and that's, that's the thing is if you're a student of art in any kind, art programs will only give you what you bring into it. There, you know, I think that's just something about the arts is that you can't just go and sit there and suddenly the magic of learning is, is imparted to you. You have to go there. You have to be there. You have to be present. You have to pay attention. You have to use all the resources. But for, for young cartoonists, really, I would, I would encourage them not to compare themselves to other people, not mm-hmm. to other cartoonists, because that's uh, unreasonable and, and not accurate because you are yourself and you can only make your comics. You can't make someone else's comics. Mm-hmm. So don't compare yourself to other people. Don't treat it like a race um, because making comics is not a race. Um, but also treat it with consistency and also treat it like a job. And I think a lot of people go into an art form expecting it to be fun every day and expecting to feel constantly creative. And that's not the reality. This is a job. And some days you don't want to go to work, and you go to work anyways. And you work through those hard patches to be successful. And uh, that's that's a lot of different bits of advice. That's something that I like that you say that I also have expressed is just that feeling like sometimes you just don't want to do it. Absolutely. Sometimes you're like, fuck this. I don't want to do this. And then I have a second voice in my head that's like, but you must. Yeah. I mean, God, there are some days where the idea of sitting down to draw seems like the most repulsive thing in the world. Like, I would rather... No, I'm not going to say that. I would rather do anything. Um, but I sit down and I do it anyways uh, because that is that is why I'm a cartoonist. That's how I'm a cartoonist. I wouldn't be a cartoonist if I only drew on the days when it was fun to draw. No, then I would get nothing done. I would get nothing done. These graphic novels wouldn't be finished. But if you want to tell a story, 
you are the only one who's going to put it out there. And so you're the only one who's going to get it done. And to do that, you have to work through these rough patches. And I, I'm always amazed. Every It always ends. Every time I have a rough patch, every time I have a day where I'm feeling negative and I don't want to draw, it ends every time for me. As mm. If I jump back into drawing and I get something done, I will eventually reach a point where it's fun again, I'm into it, and I'm feeling good. Yeah. So it does end, you yeah. know? You can get through it every time. Yeah. And the project will end. It totally will. Just keep working a you little keep, bit every day. Yeah. And finishing a project is an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. No matter how you feel about it at the end, people often finish something and they've improved so much that they look back on it and think like, oh, this is crap. But no, you wouldn't have improved if you hadn't made that. So you should look back on your work with love and pride. I really think that. I love that. I, I think, think that's so great. It's so important. I really hate, I hate when people ask me what my favorite book is that I've made because I don't pick favorites because the book I made when I was 18 was the best I could make when I was 18. The book mm -hmm. I made now is the best I can make now. Yeah. All my work has value to me. It's all contributed to me and I have to love it. Yeah, I think so, at least. Tilly Walden, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for sitting in my high-class uh, suite. Yeah. And um, we're going to look forward to fiction from you in the future because you're taking oh, a break yes. from memoir. Hells yes. Jumping into the fictional lands. All right. Well, we'll see you in the real land of Los Angeles. Oh, my God. See you there. Coming soon. With Ponyo. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.